and welcome to our June Public History Talk. Um, I have the great pleasure today of introducing our speaker, Andrew Francis. Uh, he'll talk for about 45, 50 minutes, and then we'll have some time for questions at the end. So please join me in welcoming Andrew. Thanks, Imelda, and thank you very much for inviting me to come along um, to speak to you today. Um, what I'll be speaking about today is really an overview of, um, of my doctoral thesis that I finished at the end of 2008, um, the subsequent book that came out beginning of 2012. <clears throat> when war was declared a little over 100 years ago, it was met in the main with popular enthusiasm. Thousands took to the streets in support of the Dominion and the Empire. Enlistment was swift, the Samoa, the Samoa Expeditionary Force, for example, was mobilised and on its way within days. Newspaper proprietors capturing the public mood threw their weight behind the cause and the government seemed assured of New Zealand's contribution to the Allied war effort. Less certain, however, was the immediate future of New Zealand's German and Austro-Hungarian communities. By virtue of their homelands now being at war with the British Empire, they were now considered enemy aliens, a term that would be formalised in legislation. Just as with enemy communities in the other dominions of Canada, Australia and South Africa and territories of the British Empire, New Zealand's German-speaking communities were transformed overnight from what was termed proven worthy settlers who had contributed to and in fact had helped shape New Zealand society in the Victorian Edwardian eras to lawless Hunnish brutes, untrustworthy, suspicious and the Kaiser's representatives 12,000 miles away from the fighting. The purpose of my paper today is threefold. First, it's to provide an overview of the enemy alien experience in wartime New Zealand through public, press and government actions, and to assess the extent to which the enemy alien experience here was any different to that faced by communities elsewhere in the British controlled world. Secondly, it's to explain how and why New Zealand's German communities went from significant contributors to New Zealand's development to social, economic and cultural outcasts in the blink of an eye. Was this purely a patriotic response on behalf of British New Zealanders to wartime conditions, or something which, uh, which is worthy of considerably more investigation than it has thus far attracted, a product of a far more deep-rooted xenophobia that had been in development since the mid-Victorian era, and one that was far more widespread than just the well-known enmity shown towards the colony's Asian populations. And my third um, aim today is um, the talk is really to remind people of one aspect of the war on the home front that is still often overlooked and not accorded its rightful place as a central component of the wartime narrative of New Zealand. To assess the second aim of this paper, it's necessary to traverse, albeit briefly, the 19th century settler experience. New Zealand was in 1914 a predominantly British colony with approximately 90% of its settler population comprised of people from the British and Irish Isles. Settlement began in the 1840s and has continued ever since. Non-English speaking Europeans also participated in this early settlement. While they formed a minority of the settler population, they nevertheless were noticeable. Of the 100,000 assisted migrants brought to New Zealand during the 1870s, it has been estimated that approximately 6,500 of these were continental Europeans, predominantly from Germany and Scandinavia. Many more throughout the Victorian and early Edwardian years arrived under their own steam, <coughs> excuse me, 
and it was estimated that on the outbreak of war there were approximately 10,000 residents who were of German birth or descent. Though this figure is small in comparison to the numbers of Germans that settled in Britain, Canada and Australia, they still form New Zealand's largest settler community from continental Europe. German settlement in New Zealand began in 1843 with the arrival of 130 passengers on board the St Pauli, a 388-tonne bark chartered from Hamburg. Early settlers' professions were predominantly tied to the land. Agricultural labourers, sawyers, carpenters and farriers made the early voyages, <clears throat> as did coopers, brewers and vine dressers. In terms of religious affiliations, the majority of passengers were Lutheran Protestants, though there were a small number of Bavarian Catholics, Unionists from Prussia and Baptists from the north of the German Confederation. Among the first passengers on the St Pauli were Johann Riemann Schneider and Johann Wullers, who formed the vanguard of the Lutheran Church in New Zealand. Nelson became a popular destination for new arrivals. Here, in settlements they named Ranzau and Sarau, German settlers established churches and schools and set about developing the land by growing wheat, barley, oats, as well as introducing to the region hops, vines, fruit trees and tobacco. The Nelson region, however, was not the only destination for German settlers. Elsewhere in the South Island, German communities were established, although sometimes with less success than in Nelson, in Westland, Canterbury, Otago and Southland. On the North Island, there were burgeoning settlements in Puhoy, north of Auckland, Taranaki and Manawatu. In order to formalise their settlement in New Zealand, new arrivals were granted British naturalisation in July 1844. Further ordinances in 1846, 1847, 1848 and 1851 ensured that this practice was continued for later arrivals, which met with the wishes of the colonial government keen to make British citizens of German settlers. Throughout the latter half of the 19th century and into the early 20th, German settlers readily assimilated into a dominant British way of life, while still retaining their own social, cultural and religious practices. Aside from their significant horticultural contribution, the arts, education, science and commerce all benefited as a result of German immigration. Uh, just a couple of examples here, Julius von Haas on the left, um, explorer, geologist and founder of the Canterbury Museum. And on the right, Bendix Hallenstein, merchant, manufacturer, politician, and founder of the Drapery and General Importing Company chain of stores. German settlers also contributed to the development of colonial New Zealand in perhaps the most controversial way, through warfare. A number of German residents served with colonial regiments during the New Zealand Wars of the 1860s, conflicts which of course culminated in the confiscation confiscation of large areas of prime Maori agricultural land in the North Island. To quell future conflicts, a number of military settlements were established which were manned by settlers. For serving as a military settler for three years, each man was granted a one-acre town plot and, depending on their military rank, between 50 and 400 acres in a rural location. In one of these settlements alone, Perongia, um, southwest of Hamilton, um, Messrs. Scherf, Krippner, Schmidt, Vogel, Schiske, Turnwald, Giebel, Meyer and Nashhausen all received, uh, all received grants of land. Perhaps the most well-known German-born soldier of this period was Gustavus von Temsky, a major in the Forest Rangers who fought in a number of battles during the wars. Von Temsky was born into a Prussian military family in Königsberg, which is today's Kaliningrad. He arrived in New Zealand in 1862 chasing Coromandel Gold after following both the Californian and Australian gold rushes. 
For his efforts during the New Zealand Wars, he was granted 400 acres of confiscated land, though he was shot dead by Māori in 1868 before he could accept it. I might just let you ponder on that one. <laughs> German, and I should add Scandinavian settlers, were welcomed to New Zealand. They were regarded as sober, industrious, and of sound character. Both communities in the main arrived as families, which did much to assure the dominant British settler population that these European arrivals would invest their time and expertise in the development of the colony. Dalmatian and Chinese workers, on the other hand, were viewed with suspicion, for these workers were often single men working in the gold mines or building the railways, as in the case of the Chinese, or in the Cody gum digging industries in the far north frequented by Dalmatian workers. Both communities were portrayed politically and in the press in a poor light. They were regarded as asset strippers, seizing what they could for material gain and providing no investment, economically, culturally, socially or otherwise, in the progress of New Zealand. In response to what was seen as an increasing problem, the colonial government imposed in 1881 a poll tax on Chinese immigration in an attempt to deter, deter Chinese workers from travelling to New Zealand. Initially set at £10, this was increased in 1896 to £100 when it was realised that the tax had not had the desired effect. In 1898, the government introduced the Cody Gum Industry Act in an attempt to curtail some of the Dalmatians' activities and preserve the highly profitable industry for British settlers. Throughout the late Victorian and early Edwardian period, New Zealand governments deliberated more than 20 immigration and economic-based bills. Some journals at the time argued that New Zealand was being threatened by an alien invasion, and a number of anti-German organisations, similar in rhetoric to wartime anti-German leagues, were established. Throughout this period, German settlement continued to grow and continued to be welcomed. Relations with British settlers were characterised by peace and harmony, though concerns were raised when geopolitical and military tensions developed between Britain and a European power. One example of this is the New Zealand political and press concern over Germany's place in Samoa. Germany's interests there were essentially administered from the 1880s onwards by the Deutsche Handels and Plantagen Gesellschaft, a trading company which dealt in an array of tropical goods, including copra, uh, exported to Europe to be manufactured into soaps, candles and horse feed. As the company took a firmer grip on the islands, New Zealand press expressed anxiety regarding both Germany's expansionist policies and the government in London's perceived lack of concern over Pacific developments. German expansion in the Pacific revealed a developing belief that New Zealand's role within the empire was changing. Britain's priorities shifted to the South African War between 1899 and 1902, and then it became preoccupied with Germany's naval program from 1905 onwards, which allegedly threatened Britain's control of the North Sea. This provoked disquiet within the British settler communities of New Zealand. German expansion in the Pacific increased New Zealand's sense of vulnerability, which in turn made them more hostile towards foreign powers, in particular Germany. The German threat to the security of the empire became a common theme in the British press, British press and popular literature. In New Zealand, a small number of newspapers and weekly journal editors busied themselves creating a culture of suspicion of foreigners, which became increasingly widespread in the years before war was declared. Though this did not manifest itself in hostile ways towards German communities living in New Zealand, it was laying the groundwork for an anti-foreigner campaign which was activated immediately after war was announced. Um, the background to this, to this image is that um, companies in Britain were selling large balloons for, for children, um, which sparked um, 
a kind of fear that there was a Zeppelin invasions. Um, <laughs> and people reported in New Zealand that these were also seen down in Otago as well, but it was complete, complete lie. When war was declared, the press in general regarded the position of the Dominion's German population as an unenviable one, yet one which should not be overtly disrupted by warfare. There was immediate condemnation of the Kaiser and the German government for allegedly forcing the British Empire to declare war, but in the main, New Zealand's German residents were regarded by more responsible newspaper editors as innocent victims of external circumstances. There were other organs, however, that immediately launched anti-German campaigns. Populist weekly periodicals, um, the Wellington-based New Zealand Freelance and the Auckland-based New Zealand Observer led the calls for internment of German-born residents, particularly those engaged in sensitive industries such as wharf work, the public service, or those employed in or near communication centres. These journals also agitated for a comprehensive system of control of German and Austrian residents and instilled in its readership a fear of the foreigner within and a need for total vigilance. One who was clear about the enemy uh, the empire faced was Wellington businessman, moneylender, book lover, photographer and gardener, Henry Wright. I came across this in the um, Henry Wright book collection is now housed at the Alexander Turnbull Library. And just flicking through some of the books, I came across his annotations in Degenerate Germany, which says, the Germans, what can be expected of a people who don't wash themselves, live chiefly on pigs, are addicted to pederasty, have no word in their language for gentlemen, and are bastards to the extent of one out of five. Businesses were swift to advertise their pro-British credentials, especially those whose names could be construed as being German. Um, this is the Schneiderman brothers in Auckland who were tailors, and it just says there, many unfounded rumours have been circulated that we are German subjects. We wish to inform the public that we are true British subjects, formerly of Riga in Russia, and employ none but British workers. The other well-known one of the time was the at the time called the Dresden Piano Company, uh, which in January 1915 changed its name to the Bristol Piano Company. And they said that the shareholders and directors are without exception British born and bred and are all residents under the British flag. But they had chosen the name Dresden to give it this kind of air of culture and sophistication of you know the greatest uh, musical instrument makers in the world. But of course, being called the Dresden Piano Company in First World War atmosphere wasn't necessarily a good idea. It seems, given what transpired, that businesses did so for good reasons. At the end of 1914, New Zealand experienced its first mass protest against resident Germans. Friedrich von Ziedler, a German pork butcher in Gisborne, was first visited by an outraged mob of locals on Christmas Eve, and then again on New Year's Eve. A picket line was established outside his store with the sole intention of stopping others patronising his business. Local police, some on mounts, were unable to deal with such a large crowd that had grown to over 800 by late evening. Windows were smashed and a number of looters relieved the Von Zedlers of their stock. The Von Zedlers were forced to escape with their children through the rear of the store, leaving their business to be destroyed by protesters. The attack on the Von Zedlers came at a time when, New Zealand, when the New Zealand press was reporting German cruisers shelling the English coastal towns of Hartlepool, Scarborough and Whitby in which 130 civilians were killed and over 600 were wounded. Wellington's Dominion newspaper reported Winston Churchill, um, who would have been First Lord of the Admiralty uh, at the time, reported Winston Churchill's comment that the stigma of the baby killers of Scarborough will brand their officers and men while sailors sail the seas. The 
The following month, the Otago Daily Times was one of a number of newspapers that reported extensively on German uh, on Zeppelin raids that bombarded the English coastal towns of Great Yarmouth and Kings Lynn. Others made the point that this area of the English coastline was known more for its holiday making than its military significance, and as such, this was a brutal and indiscriminate attack on innocent civilians. The sinking of the passenger liner Lusitania on the 7th of May 1915 off the coast of Southern Ireland, in which 1,200 civilians perished, sparked attacks against German businesses in Britain, Canada, Australia and South Africa, and marked, in all of those places, the height of anti-German attacks during the war. Anti-German demonstrations also took place here, the main ones being initially in Hokitika and Wanganui. In Wanganui, pork butcher Conrad Heinold complained of threats and insinuations being made by other local residents. Heinold, a naturalised Briton of 27 years and a former member of the Wellington Volunteer Corps, appealed to others to show a sense of British fair play and justice, and to desist from hurling pro-German accusations at him. However, however, within a week of the sinking, protests against and physical attacks on supposed German-owned business interests in the town took place, including the Bristol Piano Company, which had only just changed its name from the Dresden Piano Company, Hallenstein's store and Heinold's Butchery. The attacks on German or supposed German business, businesses in the first half of 1915 were indicative of two major interrelated factors which are central to the story of how New Zealand dealt with the enemy alien question during the Great War. First, the Dominion's political elite and the mainstream daily press failed to effectively deal with a, with a progressively impatient and increasingly vocal minority intent on seeing greater restrictions imposed on resident Germans and Austrians. And secondly, imperial press networks fed the New Zealand public, ensuring that it could measure its own patriotic response against what was unfolding in the other Dominions and in Britain. From a New Zealand perspective, the sinking of the Lusitania is, for two key reasons, the turning point for anti-German sentiment. First, it came at a time when public concern was growing regarding the state's perceived inertia and introducing an effective, all-encompassing anti-alien policy. And secondly, it coincided with the first Gallipoli, Gallipoli casualty lists appearing in the Dominion's newspapers. Before May 1915, the war was a conflict which New Zealanders overwhelmingly supported, but had, to that point, not yet felt its full implications. They read of civilian and military deaths in France, Belgium and Britain and wrote copious letters to newspaper editors con condemning Germany's actions, but this was different to reading of the deaths of New Zealand boys from their own hometowns. The casualty lists from Gallipoli, uh, roughly 2,700 New Zealanders died before the Allies withdrew in December 1915, made for sombre reading. As a result, attitudes towards the enemy hardened. There were few Turks in New Zealand on whom to vent frustration, but there were Germans. Most citizens of British stock had been united in the belief that German actions on the Western Front were distinct from the Dominion's own German population, leading in many cases to letters of support appearing in daily newspapers. After the Lusitania sinking, however, public condemnation rose in a number of ways. There were calls for blanket internment, anti-German societies increased in number and membership, and there were calls for the immediate deportation of all enemy aliens at the first possible opportunity. The British Empire Union, which was formed out of the more directly named Anti-German Union, influenced similar societies around the empire. Chief among the anti-German societies in New Zealand was the Women's Anti-German League, which was established in Wellington in January 1916. Its manifesto advocated protest against the employment of enemy aliens and, and insisted that patriotic New Zealanders purchase only British goods. 
The league, whose motto was New Zealand for New Zealanders, no Germans need apply, hosted recruitment drives, undertook patriotic fundraising campaigns and sought where possible to remind the government of its duty to protect New Zealanders from the enemy within. For its firm and consistent stance against enemy aliens, the League gained a friend in John Payne, MP for Grey Lynn, who through his own journal, the New Zealand Philistine, published the League's activities. During the course of the war, the League established branches in a number of major centres throughout the country and maintained a consistent hard line against all enemy aliens. Um, though the Lusitania sinking represented the high point for direct assaults on Germans here and around the world, the odd attack did continue. One of these was, was the deliberately set fire that destroyed Holcomb's Lutheran Church in July 1917. Now, this is the rebuilt church um, when it was rebuilt in 1922. As the war became more protracted, public attitudes towards foreigners strengthened. The issue of internment in particular was one which had many hours of parliamentary discussion devoted to it, filled newspaper columns and provoked a great deal of public debate. The government's first action was to intern those deemed a threat to domestic security. Soames Island in Wellington Harbour and Motuihe Island in Auckland had been hastily transformed into internment centres and both received their first intakes of prisoners of war in August 1914. Repupper Island in Littleton Harbour and Devonport Barracks in Auckland also housed a smaller number of prisoners during the war. On Soames Island, the initial intake was 90 men among them clerks, carpenters, labourers and wharf workers. They were soon joined by naval ratings captured when Samoa fell to New Zealand forces at the end of August. The camp, which housed around 300 at any one time, was essentially for those prisoners deemed second class. The first class prisoners, those of an alleged higher social standing, found themselves enjoying the relative comfort of Motuihi Island, where the weather, conditions, recreation and food were far more palatable than that provided in Wellington. On top of that, they were far fewer in number, with Motui playing host to around 60 prisoners of war. It's a significantly smaller island, but 60 people was a fairly small number. Uh, just to give you a bit of context here, every January, um, the prisoners of war were allowed to celebrate the Kaiser's birthday, and all of those weapons are carved out of wood. Um, and I was just chatting to Imelda and Neil beforehand. <coughs> the pickle halber helmets, we assume, would have been fashioned by themselves. They wouldn't have had them because any military personnel would have been naval ratings as opposed to soldiers. Um, head of the German contingent on Motuihe was former Governor of Samoa, Dr. Eric Schultz. Um, this man could write a letter of complaint like nobody else I've ever come across. <laughs> the National, the uh, Archives New Zealand are full of folders of his letters fired off to anybody who would listen effectively. Um, Schultz did very nicely. Um, this is his bungalow in the foreground here. Um, a bungalow was set aside for him Rumours at the time that it was built for him, it wasn't, it had already been there. But Schultz didn't like mix him with the, the Chief Justice and the you know, various other people, so he was given his own bungalow um, where he lived with his valet, and uh, sorry, with his secretary, a chap called Max Mars, and his valet, um, a Samoan um, called Fatu Ayono, who had agreed um, when New Zealand took Samoa, he agreed to go with to Schultz into captivity, which was quite interesting. So Schultz's bungalow in the foreground, the one behind it is the camp commandant, Lieutenant Colonel Turner, I'll speak a bit more about him shortly, and then the main barracks up the back there. So really well away from, you know, from prying eyes. 
The most famous prisoner of war, uh, on Motuihe that is, was Count Felix von Luckner, and I'll say more about him shortly. Just to give you a couple of ideas of the, the recreation, the privations of war on Motuihe Island, it certainly wasn't like this in Wellington, given you know, we, know the, we know the conditions <laughs> in the harbour, we didn't have those kind of things down here. And you can see the sort of very, very smartly, very well turned out um, men that lived on Motuihe Island. They all had very um, handsome pays uh, back, in, uh, back in Samoa. In a sarcastic look at the treatment of internees, the New Zealand Observer ran an article entitled Life and Death on Motuihi. It lampooned the hardships endured there that included having to tolerate one of the most scenic spots in the Hauraki Gulf, the plentiful supply of good quality food and the opportunity for visits to the mainland. Trips into Auckland were supposedly only for urgent official business, but as it transpired, pleasure trips to enjoy Auckland had to offer were commonplace. Numerous people would write letters of complaint to the New Zealand Herald saying I was sat in my favourite restaurant and you know there were five German internees there. Um, it turned out to be it wasn't scaremongering, they did. They quite often would go to Auckland to, to sample the delights, would go to shows and that kind of thing. A regular theme throughout the war. Uh, was the concern over the cost and quality of rations the prisoners of war received. On Symes, the cost of the public purse was 11 pence per day. On Motuihi, this increased considerably to 3 shillings and 5 pence per day, <laughs> further highlighting the contrast between the two groups of, of internees. A New Zealand soldier stationed at Trentham or Featherstone received daily rations costing 1 shillings and 6 pence per day. Added to this was the cost of running the camps, which amounted on Soames to eight shillings per man per day, on Motuihi, seven shillings, tuppence per day. Um, when it was brought up during a parliamentary debate, James Allen, who was the New Zealand Minister of Defence, said, we, we're not too concerned about the cost of this because we will just simply recoup it from the Germans at the end of the war, which obviously didn't happen. But this was kind of lampooned, all of this, the treatment the internees received was lampooned um, by pretty much most of the weekly journals. <laughs> Two characters epitomised the internment debate in New Zealand during the Great War for, for different reasons. George von Zedlitz, a Wellington academic who attracted considerable press, public and then finally parliamentary attention before he was dismissed from his post, and the aforementioned Count Felix von Luckler. Luckner, the swashbuckling naval commander who, once captured and interned, promptly escaped again, leading to widespread protests that New Zealand internment centres were woefully inefficient. Um, this is von Zedlitz, yeah, on the back, second row. Sorry, second in from the back. German-born von Zedlitz, the professor of modern languages at Wellington's Victoria College, as VUW was then known, had resided in New Zealand for 13 years, yet had never seen the need to take out British naturalisation. Unlike other German residents who were dismissed from their posts at the outbreak of war, von Zedlitz retained both his position and liberty until October 1915. It was only after the government introduced the Alien Enemy Teachers Act that month that von Zedlitz was, was removed from his position. The legislation is significant in it was introduced with the sole purpose of removing him from his post, but the 14 months prior to the introduction of the Act are of equal importance because they illustrate the influence that press and public attitudes towards the affair had had on the government. A small number of parliamentarians, chief among them John Payne and also Henry Thacker, MP for Christchurch East, ably supported by the Freelance and Observer, questioned why the academic was being spared when other non-naturalised residents in similar positions of public office were not only losing their jobs, but in some cases were also being interned. 
It presented the case as both a matter of domestic security and an issue of class privilege, a heady mix in wartime egalitarian New Zealand. The tenor of the campaign was that as a university professor, von Zedlitz was in a position to exert influence over the minds of young men of military service age. As such, he should be considered a public threat and immediately removed from his post. Throughout the first half of 1915, however, the government was loath to intervene in what it regarded as a university matter. It may have considered this the correct approach to take at the time, but it failed to acknowledge a growing and increasingly persistent press campaign eager to see the professor dealt with. Wellington's populist newspaper, The Truth, advanced its own position. The self-appointed champion of the lower classes questioned why distinctions existed between, and I quote, a harmless wharf-working German or street musician and a clever German professor. The Truth advocated for the public to insist, and I quote again, that the authorities shall not make fish of one and flesh of another. To illustrate its point that the von Zedlitz case had advanced from a private university matter into an issue of utmost public concern, it published a cartoon depicting von Zedlitz sitting uneasily on a chair clutching a bag containing £700, which was his annual salary, while a red-hot poker of public indignation draws ever closer. The cartoon's caption, Getting Too Hot, Will He Quit, made clear this periodical's position. On the 14th of September 1915, the government introduced the Alien Enemy Teachers Bill. Despite Massey's assertion that the introduction of the bill was general in its application, it is clear from the ensuing parliamentary debate that it was in introduced with von Zedlitz in mind. One Liberal member, Thomas Wilford, argued that the legislation represented a special bill for a special man, a measure necessary due to the government's failure to deal effectively with von Zedlitz's status when war broke out. In short, the bill disqualified all enemy aliens from holding positions in educational institutions, supported wholly or in part by the public purse. Von Zedlitz, certain that the bill was being introduced, and I quote, expressly for the purpose of compelling the College Council to dispense with my services, tendered for the third and final time his resignation. On this occasion, the College Council had no choice but to accept. He had already tried to, um, to resign his position twice before, and the College Council said, no, this is a matter of, of pride, and um, they just simply refused to accept it. So they, in fact, exacerbated the situation as much as anybody else did. The von Zedlitz affair sparked considerable public, press and parliamentary debate. It came at the time when Gallipoli casualty lists were beginning to appear in the Dominion's newspapers and the Lusitania sinking was fresh in the public consciousness. It also exposed perceived weakness in Massey's administration to deal comprehensively with the enemy alien question. The von Zedlitz issue, for example, showed that the government was compelled to act only once public clamour for von Zedlitz's removal became too vociferous to ignore. Two years later, the Felix von Luckner saga once again brought the government's alleged weakness to deal with its enemy alien question into sharp public focus. Von Luckner was a German naval commander who, on board his raider Zeadler, had captured a number of British ships in the Pacific. Those captured were all made safe before their vessels were looted and sunk. In November 1917, von Luckner and his crew were captured and interned. The majority of his crew were sent to Somes Island in Wellington, while von Luckner and his second-in-command Karl Kirkheis were taken to the far more relaxed atmosphere of Motuihe. A month later, the Count, Kirkheis and a hastily assembled new crew escaped. In broad daylight, they boarded the Camp Commandant, Lieutenant Colonel Turner's launch, the Pearl, and sailed north from Auckland, armed with homemade, home-fashioned hand grenades, a wireless receiver and a sextant. Um, 
this isn't an image of them sailing away because obviously <laughs> Turner is on it but this is the boat that they took they said um, it, it, it had broken down and they said well look if you leave us to it we will fix it for you <laughs> and of course they fixed it and disappeared <clears throat> the intention was to use the pearl to commandeer a sailing ship with which to sail to Rarotonga there they would seize and intern the British residents and await the arrival of a steamer from there, they would sail to Samoa and retake the islands. Their escape created international headlines, and it became for William Massey the most regrettable thing that has occurred since the war has begun. Um, this is a bed sheet that they'd hand painted the imperial flag on and, and flew from the ship as, from the boat as well. The incident highlighted the point that security at Motuihe was far more lax than the public realised at the time. The New Zealand Herald stated that no local news which has been published in Auckland or in New Zealand since the war commenced has aroused such an indignant storm of protest as the escape of the Germans from Motuihe. The freelance made it clear that it did not blame von Luckner and his crew for escaping. In fact, it was expected that men would fulfil their duties by attempting to escape. Instead, it denounced, and I quote, the official ineptitude which led to this most lamentable and disgraceful scandal. The escape, it explained, was symptomatic of the leniency hitherto shown enemy aliens. Not only could they openly communicate with friends, relations and sympathisers in Auckland and Wellington, they were also, and I quote again, fed like fighting cocks and have little to do save grow fat. Von Luckner and his crew were at large for eight days, which was long enough to cause considerable public anxiety. Their recapture sparked as much public debate as did his initial flight. The freelance stated that, and I quote, Public opinion on this subject of control of aliens is far ahead of government action. That there has been the most culpable negligence in dealing with the Germans in this country is certain. Public opinion, strongly and widely expressed, may perhaps force the government to exhibit a little more sense in dealing with what might yet be a serious menace to the community. Von Luckner's case could not be more different than von Zedlitz's. Whereas the professor received almost no favourable press either during or immediately after the war, the Count continued to enjoy celebrity status, <clears throat> first being the subject of a biography by Lyle Thomas, chronicler of that other great war heroic figure T. E. Lawrence, and on his celebrated return to New Zealand in 1938, where he was received by large crowds wherever he went. As we know, the fighting ceased in November 1918 with the signing of the armistice. The armistice coincided with the influenza pandemic, which, as in most other societies, swept through New Zealand with devastating consequences. It claimed 8,600 lives, which equated to three times the number of New Zealanders who died at Gallipoli, and almost half the total number of New Zealand personnel who died during the war. In this atmosphere, anti-German sentiment dissipated relatively quickly. The authorities handed back Soames and Motuihi Islands to the Department of Health, where they resumed their pre-war roles as quarantine stations. Prisoners of war were transferred to Featherston Camp or Devonport Barracks, where they were held prior to their release, or in the case of 410 prisoners of war, including von Luckner and Schultz, their repatriation to Germany in May 1919. In September 1919, just four months after the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, which brought about an official end to the war, the British government announced it was resuming trade relations with Germany. Commerce, after all, was commerce, and a four-year conflict in which millions perished should not obstruct the financial rebuilding of Europe. Despite the cartoon, this did not necessarily create a patriot's dilemma here, as Germany had never constituted one of New Zealand's main trading partners. It did, however, signal for the freelance at least that close commercial ties with Britain and the Empire needed to be forged 
And if you can't read the, the slogan at the bottom, it says, The Patriots' Dilemma, um, cabled last week that trade relations were beginning uh, between Britain and Germany. And the British citizen is saying, can I afford to be patriotic? To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether to be patriotic and go bankrupt, or buy off the enemy and live prosperously. <laughs> the declaration of war was instrumental in the development of a New Zealand national identity, one distinct from, but shaped by imperial ties. Like most imperial societies in the first months of war, New Zealand's treatment of its German-born and German descent communities was largely commendable. Those interned in the war's early months were predominantly German personnel brought from Samoa following New Zealand forces capture of it in late August 1914, and a number of residents deemed dangerous to home security or hostile to the Dominion's war effort. However, as has been shown, the protected nature of the war, the sinking of the Lusitania and the associated riots elsewhere, encouraged a small number of anti-German MPs and an increasingly belligerent popular press to campaign for tighter controls against enemy aliens here. While wartime conditions did allow for an anti-German sentiment to develop, it was not the first time that New Zealanders had expressed xenophobic attitudes. New Zealand's Victorian and Edwardian immigration policies did prepare up to a point its overwhelmingly British population for the level of prejudiced and racist attitudes adopted against Germans after 1914. What was different here, of course, was that Germans were North Europeans, not the Asiatic or Slavic peoples who were supposedly destroying New Zealand's British cultural and linguistic traditions through their mass immigration. Both the von Zedlitz and von Luckner affairs illustrate well the dilemma in which the government found itself throughout the conflict. Whether it should have intervened earlier in the von Zedlitz case is open to interpretation, but what is clear is that the government reacted when it felt public order was under threat. Likewise, von Luckner's escape highlighted the seemingly lax restrictions in place at Motui internment camp. Massey and his government had to resist the ensuing public and press demand for, for tougher conditions in the camps. It did, for the most part, remain firm but fair, adhering to the traditions of British fair play. But this was not always easy. An increasingly belligerent public, buoyed by the support of an equally virulent anti-foreigner press, demanded swift action against the liberty of supposedly dangerous enemy aliens. But the government was forceful in interning those it considered dangerous and monitored closely those to whom it was prepared to offer the benefit of the doubt. By working closely with the police and military authorities, it took few risks in allowing either enemy aliens to run loose or public law and order to be compromised. In the final analysis, I believe, just as in Britain and the other dominions, the treatment of enemy alien communities is crucial to understanding the New Zealand home front during the Great War. And yet, as with other societies, it still remains, 100 years later, one aspect that still has not been fully accorded its place in the home front narrative. That's it. Thank you. Have we got some questions out there? Oh, look, lots of them. Okay. Andrew, you didn't say much about activity on Soames Island in terms of the internees. Uh, were they locked up? Uh, did they have to work? Were they given the freedom of the island? How did all that work? They, they were given the freedom of the island. There were certain areas they couldn't go, um, but they were given most of the freedom of the island. They, the only work they were compelled to do was to keep their barracks clean, you know, for sanitary reasons and that kind of thing. Some chose to work. Um, one of the main differences between prisons, prisons of war here and in other countries um, Certainly in Britain and Canada, there are numerous stories of, as the men went away, um, German prisoners of war would go and work on farms and work in factories to, to block you know, the, the shortage of men. That didn't happen here, but you're talking about a significantly smaller number of people. 
Um, Soames Island, yeah, a few people escaped. They swam. And quite often I will go around to Petone, like others probably have to, and have a walk out to the end of the pier there. And it's still a pretty long way from the end of that pier to Soames Island, but a number of people did escape. One died escaping, he drowned. Um, and it seemed to be that when they were captured, the reason they were escaping wasn't necessary to get away, but it was to pr- protest about the conditions on the island. You know, so that a couple were picked up by police um, along um, Hutt Road, and they said, take us to the police station because we want to talk about you know, the lack of food we're getting and, the, and the, the brutality of the island. Just a supplementary question. I understand a number of the Dalmatians were incarcerated on Soames as well, particularly the ones who hadn't taken out British citizenship. Was there any kind of friction? I mean, you talked about the different uh, perspectives of the German people as opposed to the Dalmatian people. Was there any kind of friction amongst those two groups on the island? No, generally not. And they seem they seem to mix. Um, when there were protests, um, they would have half a dozen people would you know would add their name to a list of, of protest, and there were clearly a couple of Dalmatian names in there. So they seemed to get on pretty well. Dalmatian, uh, for those who um, who weren't interned, they are quite an interesting community during the First World War because they were forced to work. Um, the government introduced in 1917, they have they had to work on public works programs, or be interned, which didn't happen to Germans who were still at liberty. There's a great book, it's quite old now, but now by Andrew Trelin, um, once despised, now respected, or the other way around, coming to the exact title. Um, and, and, and they, yeah, they, they were forced to work. They received the same pay as a, as a New Zealand soldier, but they, they, and many stayed behind at the end of the First World War. They do stop banking work or clearing ditches and that kind of thing. Yeah, I've just got a question. How were um, the German women treated in New Zealand? Um, pretty well. Um, I think most, <coughs> I mean, I've been given the, the kind of the more extreme end of it. Most people um, <coughs> realised that, that most of the, the Germans that they knew would have been their, their butcher, their baker, candlestick maker. Um, they were in a very unenvious position. And you can go through all of the newspapers that I've went through and you can see as many stories, uh, letters to the editor saying these are good, decent people and their wives are good, decent people. So they were treated fairly well. There was a hardship fund set up by the government in 1914 that looked out. Because, of course, if you were, if you were the breadwinner and you were interned, and then it made it significantly more difficult for the wives, their trouble really came if they were a what we were termed a British woman who had married a German, their difficulty came at the end of the First World War because if, there was, if they had a husband who was being repatriated to Germany, they were in the unenviable position of either do I go with him to a, a country completely war-torn for the last years on its knees or do I stay here? You know? And um, legislation was introduced in 1919 for quickie divorces for, for women in that position you know, who didn't want to go with their husbands back to Germany. Yeah, but generally they were treated pretty well. You made no mention of the execution of Edith Cavill. Did that have a great deal of effect here? Um, it did. It covered, yeah, less so than than the sinking of the, the Lusitania. But yes, it did. Yeah, and again, that was another another issue where it hardened um, people's attitudes towards Germans. And the other thing I wanted to ask you was, uh, when you were talking about Germans, are you including Austrians? Yeah, mainly... Um, most of the Aust- who were considered Austro-Hungarians here would have been Dalmatian gun diggers, um, but there were Austrian, as we know it now, Austrians here, German-speaking uh, Austro-Hungarians, but predominantly Germans. If people could, um, Danes were also included. You know, German-speaking Danes, they had to have someone vouch for them before they were interned or uh, forced to report to the police station. 
So yeah, so it was very difficult to work out who was who. Um, Swiss people also would have been uh, were caught up in this. But yeah, but, but the majority of Austro-Hungarians who are considered Austro-Hungarians would have been Dalmatian speakers. Mm-hmm. You talked about the letters, Andrew, that were, I think you said, were fairly much, there was many in favour in defence of these people as there were against. But what was the press itself, was their reaction monolithic or were there dissenting voices editorially um, in some of the papers? Yeah, I think it, it depends around the, uh, the time. I mean, I think most most newspaper editors were, you know, as I as I said in my talk, they felt that German um, Germans living in New Zealand were in an unenviable position. Um, but once the sinking of the Lusitania happens, you, you see in the more moderate newspapers attitudes really do harden. So it goes in kind of peaks and troughs throughout the war, really. And it's very interesting the, the story I mentioned about Comrade Heinold. Um, the Lusitania was sunk on the seventh. It starts to appear. The stories of it start to appear in the Wanganui papers on the ninth. And then that's when he starts writing his letters. You can kind of see it building up, you know, and I think he's attacked about the 18th, but it's a week and a bit of him writing letters and the press coverage of the Wanganui Chronicle, I think it was, become more and more belligerent towards Germans. And then you turn the next page and there's a big picture of the shop floor, the shop front being put in. So you kind of see these things building up. And I, and I think there is a lot of... There's been coverage of um, a chap called Simon Potter wrote a great book in Britain about um, imperial press networks, and you can see it. if you if you pick an event in the First World War, you look at the, the newspaper stories in the UK a day or so later because of the, the speed of the Telegraph appears here, and you can see it feeding off of the British press stories. Um, and it's quite an interesting exercise to do it because you see that you know the the, the killing of, of people in Zeppelin raids in the East End of London or on the East Coast of England. Um, takes on a whole different connotation when it's viewed in newspapers here. And I did this exercise for newspapers here, Canada and South Africa, and it's pretty much the same. And the Lusitania riots in, in New Zealand are nothing compared to elsewhere, mainly you know, London, Liverpool, but Johannesburg. I mean, they virtually raised the city there. Um. We have to close off questions there. Uh, thanks, everyone, for generating a lot of really interesting questions for Andrew. So thank you very much and please join me in thanking Andrew.